Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. Cory Booker burst on the national scene in the early 2000s, a Yale-educated lawyer who moved to the inner city of Newark to try and affect social change and reform a corrupt political system. He was elected mayor in 2006, launched highly watched initiatives to quell the high levels of violence in that city, to reform the schools, to restore the economy of Newark, and in 2014 was elected to the U.S. Senate. Now, as you know, he's running for president of the United States. I sat down with Senator Booker for my CNN TV show. Here's the full conversation. Senator Cory Booker, welcome home. It is uh, incredible to be sitting here with you um, and, and really what was a locus of a lot of community change. Here at City Hall? Yes, it's powerful for me to sit here. It's been a while since I've uh, sat right here. Let me ask you a question. When you sit here, now you've been a United States Senator for five years yeah. or so. Uh, do you sit here and say, man, I kind of like being able to make decisions <laughs> and make things happen. A little less talk and a little more action. I, Tell I, the truth. Well, the, the feeling I have, the, the truthful feeling I have is like this overwhelming sense of just gratitude, almost debt. Um, this is a city that took me from a law student and gave me, my, gave me my first shot to lead. And we have a habit of, in this country of electing people who've never run anything to positions. And so I started this job having no experience, I'm managing thousands of people, like a billion dollars budget, and learned on the job. And eventually we got really, really good at managing. I had the occasion to watch the other night this documentary, Street Fight, that was made about your 2002 campaign when you were cha- challenging the, the incumbent machine, Mayor Sharp James, who ultimately ended up serving a term not in City Hall but in the penitentiary at the end of his, his career. But it was a brawl. Uh, and you were the earnest young reformer uh, fighting uh, the corrupt status quo. And your message was crystal clear. Uh, it was unmistakable, new versus old, uh, reform versus corruption, you know, schools, jobs, policing. Um, tell me what your message is now that you're running for president of the United States. It's very simple, very straightforward, is this is a nation who built a global reputation for doing impossible things. Uh, for bringing people together from diverse backgrounds and accomplishing uh, uh, extraordinary feats of humanity, whether it's expanding the middle class bigger and better than anybody had ever done it before, uh, sending people to the moon, all of these things by bringing people together and accomplishing great things. We are at a point now in American society that people are losing faith in our ability to do big things anymore. They feel like the forces tearing us apart are stronger than those that are holding us together. I'm running for president of the United States 
to, because I don't believe that, to, to rekindle, to revive that sense of common purpose to address what I know is a sense of common pain in this country. We need to repair that fabric of our community, and we need to get to the business of addressing persistent injustices in America. That's a very different message than some of the other candidates uh, and some of, the, uh, some of the energy in the Democratic Party, which says we are a divided country and one has to choose sides and win these fights because the results of not doing that uh, could be catastrophic. You, you have a different view. Well, you know, First of all, we wouldn't have passed comprehensive uh, uh, criminal justice reform. It's just a first step, but it's a bill that people told me we couldn't get done. And we got it done because we found a lot of common ground with people that I can write a dissertation on my disagreements with. Um, we are a nation that if you poll issues absent the politics that divides us, and you know this, the Affordable Care Act, if you poll that as Obamacare, it has a lot less approval on the Republican side than if you just poll the, the elements of it. Do you believe that people with pre-existing conditions should be able to get insurance? I also remember, by the way, that when the Affordable Care Act was being debated, there were people who said if it didn't have a public option in it, uh, that the president should walk away from it. Uh, president wanted the public option, but he couldn't get it. Uh, but I run into people all the time who've been helped by it. And I, uh, I wonder how I would have looked them in the eye if I said, you know, we, we wanted to help, but we decided we couldn't get everything we wanted, so we decided not to do anything at all. Well, I, you know, in the speech I, the launching my, my hometown launch, I took right at that issue to my party that I live in, I'm the only person in the Senate, the only person in this race that lives in an inner city, black and brown community that's below the poverty line still. We made a lot of progress in Newark, but I chose 20 years ago to move in a tough neighborhood. And the people in my community don't have time to wait for you to hold hostage progress because of your ideological purity. Um, I had to make tough decisions. When you have to run something, you have to cobble together the coalitions to move the ball down the field. We built a hotel right down the street, uh, the first one in 40 years in this city. I, I got apprenticeship programs for my kids. I got... Uh, 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 hundreds of jobs in construction and permanent jobs in, in there. It's expanded our economy. I can go on what one hotel. Now we have four or five in our city. But, you know, we worked with uh, institutional capital. You know, I, I went to firms uh, that are vilified, and I've been one of those people that vilified a lot of their practices, but we found ways to bring together uncommon coalitions to today help move the ball forward. And so I, I respect the president for his tough decisions. Um, when you're an executive and you have to fix things and you have the urgency of communities that are too often left out, marginalized, or struggling, my, the people on my block when I come home uh, from, from the Senate, from Washington, they're less interested in, in my, uh, my partisan fights than what we are actually doing to make communities better. You know, I'm interested in, in what you said about not uh, being a prisoner of ideological purity when you're trying to get things done. It's a very pragmatic uh, point of view, but I, I, I watch you in this race trying to navigate these forces. So you are a co-sponsor of Senator Sanders' Medicare for All bill. You're on the Green New Deal and so on. But then I hear you talking about it, and you're very quick to acknowledge that, no, you're probably not going to transform the whole health care system overnight. And yes, there are transitional steps, like allowing uh, people who want to buy into Medicare to do it, or do, starting it at 55 and so on. So it feels like you're checking the box, but you're also uh, kind of cooling uh, the, the expectations. 
Look, I remember having a debate with this. My staff pulled up a tweet from when I was mayor talking about universal health care. I mean, this is something that when you are a mayor and you see the brokenness of this system that we spend so much money on, uh, uh, because the system is perverted. We treat uh, uh, injuries or illness, excuse me, illnesses in the hospital emergency room when it's so much more expensive than if my community could have gotten into primary care right. or afforded a prescription drugs. The system's broken. If we were gonna design a system that doesn't, doesn't work, that was hyper expensive, this would be the system we designed. I, I support Medicare for all because I think it's the best way to get to the common goal that Republicans and Democrats have, that in this country, healthcare should be a right. That it shouldn't be something that is the purview of people that have money versus people who don't. But you know that the bill that you signed on to and, and this, takes it all in one swallow. Yeah, and, and, and again, <laughs> I, I'm not going to be one of those people that's afraid to tell people what my vision and hope is. But I'm also one of the, and by the way, I still remember here when I announced that we were gonna double the production of affordable housing, because this was a city that was not gonna allow ourselves to be gentrified, was gonna deal with the housing crisis. And you know, my head of economic development basically said to me, well, you gotta build the first unit. You gotta start somewhere. And we haven't figured out how we're gonna get to that goal, but let's start by doing it. And I didn't know how we were gonna get to that goal, but by the way, we reached the goal, finding creative ways to make continued progress. And so I do believe that there, if I'm the president of the United States, that the first thing I can do is, by the way, 150 million or so people have private insurance. They really like their insurance. You, you've gotta start building the kind of coalitions you need to make progress towards expanding care and lowering costs. So yeah, the first thing I'd be interested in doing is lowering the, the, the uh, Medicare eligibility in a very pragmatic way, maybe to 55. We were one vote shy of doing that in the Senate. Uh, and, and that's gonna help to actually lower costs of the private insurance because it'll get older people out. There's common sense things we can do to lower prescription drugs. That's what you do when you are a person who's governing is you find the things that you can do to move the ball down the field. I think I know the future of this country. I don't know if it's four years out or 50 years out. It is intolerable that we are a nation where everybody doesn't have access to health care. We're going to get there. You don't think that the bill that you're co-sponsoring, the Sanders bill, would pass the Senate anytime soon? It, it, it will not pass the Senate. Um, and the way I look at this 2020 elections, we're not gonna get enough votes. That doesn't mean I'm not gonna try. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I'm not a prisoner of hope. It doesn't mean that we aren't gonna do things that shock either you and I in terms of outcomes. I'm, I still think that we have a, this could be a breakthrough election. I think we are still in this playoff that we don't know if this is gonna be a small election about getting rid of one guy in one office. I'm working every day to make it a much bigger election. Can we talk about the one guy in the one office? Donald Trump, I, I, as we sit here today, I think his, his, his approval rating has inched up a little bit in the Gallup poll. It's at 46%. Um, he has a solid base of people who are very, very committed to him. Why do you think he has people who are committed to him? What binds them to him? Look, I don't know. I know I've taken a lot of time to go to communities, sit with people that have supported the president. I think that they... There are a lot of really, and I, this is what bothers me when people paint with broad brushes and try to say the Republicans condemning them when, like, wait a minute, there are 60 million people that voted that way. Uh, the Democratic Party I found has no monopoly on the truth or, or, or often isn't responsible for really awful policy that does really bad things. Newark can testify to what uh, the 1994 crime bill um, uh, pushed by a Democratic president did to a community like this. And so here are a lot of folks that supported Donald Trump because they believed or believe that he will be a person that will stand for them and fight for them and sees them and aff affirms where they are. 
If we're a party that can't speak to coal miners, that can't speak to factory workers, can't speak to to a lot of folks that were not feeling like this, our party was speaking to them, we're going to lose those folks. Right now, the president is challenging Congress in a, in a historic way, uh, resisting uh, on a lot of different fronts, uh, subpoenas, requests for information, uh, requests for people to come uh, and testify, not just on the Russia probe and on the Mueller report, but on a wide array uh, of issues. What should... Congress do about that? And at what point, you know, there's this concern about impeachment as a political issue. It's not a popular issue if you look at uh, polling. On the other hand, there are certain things that are enumerated in the Constitution. There are actions that actually do constitute high crimes and misdemeanors. Some would argue the Mueller report catalogs those. Uh, How do you uh, protect the institutions um, and respect the politics of the moment? Well, first of all, I appreciate the way you sort of broaden that question to more than just the Mueller report and subpoenas. We, we've seen a lot of um, what I think is a violation of the separation of powers as powers enumerated for Article I branch of government have, are slipping to or being taken by the Article II branch of government. Foreign relations, uh, foreign policy is a great example of this. In fact, I've had criticisms of uh, a number of presidents in a row who have taken on uh, war powers that I believe were reserved for for Congress. Our interventions in Yemen is a great example. We have a president that bombed Syria. He wasn't bombing terrorist organizations. He was bombing a regime that we have not declared war on. So I, I think that we have a real, in a sobered way, and I'm glad I have these conversations with Republicans and Democrats, need to start talking about making sure that we have a respect for the separation of powers. This impeachment proceedings, if you read that Mueller report with any kind of objectivity, it is a fierce documentation of, on the campaign side, a campaign that was willing to have contact after contact after contact with a foreign adversary, then try to lie about it and cover it up. Literally, the President of the United States ordering uh, McGahn to manufacture false documents, trying to throw uh, people off the trail of the truth. This is, this is really bad. And, and I don't care whether you want to say it's impeachable or not. Can't we all just agree this is despicable behavior? Yeah. That, and, and, and as Mueller even said, that's worthy of a, a potential uh, obstruction of justice charges. So this is not to me a partisan issue. This is the Congress needs to continue to do its job. See the unredacted report. Uh, interview, interview, have hearings with Mueller in it. See the un- underlying uh, uh, documentation. I'm, I'm not... Everything right now should be on the table as the Congress does its investigation. It's it, because there probably are reasons not to proceed beyond the politics, Democratic and Republican politics, in that impeachment is a wrenching exercise for the country. On the other hand, in the face of some of the things you've seen, if you don't act, you're, you're, you're further reducing uh, the norm, you're shredding the norm, the standard now. Uh, there are acts that would have been considered impermissible that become permissible. Yeah, so look, the, the benefit of being the mayor of this city, which was a city really tough, intractable problems, is that you had moments where there are just really difficult decisions. This is going to be a really difficult decision. And what, what I've done on numerous points of my career, even as a United States senator, I remember having President Obama calling me up about the Iran deal and mm-hmm all the pressures and everything, there are moments in your life where you have to say, damn the politics, and, and, and recognize with humility that you're 
a human being, but make the best decision you can about what's best for the country and, and damn the politics because life is about purpose, not position. And those people that want to so cling to their position and willing to violate their purpose in order to hold on to that position, I think uh, they, they shred their, uh, I, I, I think they shred their integrity and, and ultimately lose their effectiveness. So, so you're open to the idea that impeachment still I, may be I am necessary. going to, first of all, I'm a senator, so I don't, Understand, I'm the, I'm understand but jury. I'm not going to give you that cheap out. I'm not going to take the cheap out. I'm just telling you that yes. I'm also a presidential candidate, and we'll have to answer this question, not from the press. I'll have to answer this question from voters. Voters. Who are who more are, important. Who are much, no disrespect. <laughs> no, no. A lot I, of respect I, for I know you, where I stand. But I'm sorry. <laughs> you are not an Iowa caucus goer. Um, so I have to stand in the saddle and tell people where I stand. And um, where I stand right now is I want to see the unredacted report. I want to see Mueller. I want, uh, and, oh, and I'm on the judiciary hearing. God willing, I'll get a chance to uh, question him um, before we come to a conclusion. And I will make that conclusion on what I think is not best for my presidential campaign, not best for my politics. I will make the decision on what I think. In, 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 in a, with the gravity of what's at stake with a president that's done high crimes and restraining I'll make the decision on what's best for the country. Nancy Pelosi uh, said this week, apparently to her caucus, and it was reported, uh, that you mean things that you say to your caucus to leak out? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, welcome to the 21st century here. Uh, maybe the, no, probably think, in the 19th and the 20th yeah, and the, you remember yes, the 18th it's just they, as well. they travel faster now. <laughs> yes, um, I still think back then the lie could get halfway around the world before the truth can put it on its pants. But go but ahead. But this apparently wasn't a lie. This uh, yes. she, she said yes. she's concerned that if the election were close, that the president wouldn't accept the result. And on the heels of that, uh, Jerry Falwell. Jr., one of his supporters, tweeted that he was owed an extra two years because the first two years were stolen from him because of the Mueller probe. And, and then the president retweeted that and amplified on it. Uh, do these things concern you? Do you take them seriously? <laughs> they better concern you when you hear people in, in high offices in this land, not just flaunting democratic norms, but in a way saber-rattling, threatening... Um, the very fabrics of what makes us distinguish on the planet Earth is that we are a nation of laws. We're a nation of these traditions that the peaceful transition of power, which we almost take for granted, other countries that have the same democratic system, have the same constitution. These documents are ultimately worth what they're written, the ideals, because of men and women hold them to be true. And when men and women betray those documents, those these institutions will fall. Now, I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, but... Uh, when I hear that coming from the President of the United States, I, I take it seriously, and frankly, it, it makes me want to double down in, in speaking out against that and work even harder to replace him in, in 2020. You released a, a plan this week, uh, comprehensive 14 points uh, on gun control. It goes well beyond what has um, uh, what we've seen from from many others, including registration. Uh, of gun owners with screening interviews for them, universal background checks, and assault weapons ban. I don't need to delve into it. You've been talking about it uh, widely. I want to ask you about something else, which is um, your experience with gun violence. Living here in this city, um, you have you, you have mentored young people who have been killed. You wrote in your book about a young man uh, named Hassan Washington and uh, who was killed. Um, his father was in prison, and you were uh, hoping to influence him 
uh, and he was and he was murdered. And, and you have countless stories like that. I think just the other night there was a shooting not far from where where you live. What does this do to a community? What does it do to these kids? What does it do to you? So, uh, you know, I can't not be emotional on this issue. Uh, you, you mentioned Hassan's name, and, and I still remember l- leaving. It was the first weeks I was elected mayor of the city. He was a kid that lived in my buildings who would be there hanging out in the lobby when I'd come home, and he, um, I still remember smelling marijuana in the lobby and worrying. I smelled marijuana at Stanford, had no worries. But in communities like mine, kids don't have the margins to, you know, to, to do things that, privileged kids or, or or college kids do all the time and you know it, it, it ate me up with guilt and shame that uh Hassan remi- when I met him he rem- reminded me of my father and he was being raised by his grandmother as my dad for four fl- was four floors below me and look he, he was one of the first murders when I was mayor and I got too busy to continue the mentoring I felt like I, I should have been doing when I saw him in distress and I still remember as clear as it is day that you know, at his funeral, it was in, in Perry's funeral home, which is in the central ward where I live. Everything is on the first floor in that funeral home except for one um, room, and it, it was in that room, and I hated that room because I had seen too many children in boxes. And going down there was like descending into the bowel of a ship where people are, are, are chained together, moaning and groaning. And I just couldn't stay. I couldn't take it anymore. And I was the mayor of the city, and people were looking to me for strength, and I had none to give. And I, I ran out of that room and came back here and slammed the doors. The first time, I just broke in my office. And I felt this sense of unbelievable shame. And, and everybody had shown up for his funeral, and I couldn't escape the idea of why couldn't we show up for his life? And that this kid had more gifts than I have. He had a natural talent, natural leadership. And uh, he is now just another another statistic that no, nobody seemed to pay attention to. And so uh, there's a larger issue going on, suicides, mental health, 100 people a day, every one of them has a story, every one of them has a family, every one of them has a community, but I live in a neighborhood for 20 years where people are getting killed at rates and shot at rates, as in other cities, it is unacceptable. And, and so I am tired of living in a country where people are slaughtered in a concert, nothing changes. People are killed in a synagogue, nothing changes. In a grade school, nothing changes. On my streets every day, and nothing changes. So when I'm president of the United States, I'm taking a fight to this issue like, like folks will have never seen before because we're better than this as a country. It's a uniquely American problem. No other country has this kind of carnage. More people in my lifetime have died in this nation uh, 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 due to gun violence and in all the wars from the Revolutionary War to now. We are not going to give thoughts and prayers, which to me is just bullshit. And I'm sorry to say that as a man of faith, but I was taught that faith without works is dead. We're going to bring a fight with everything that I have to solve this problem because it's solvable and we know it. 90% of people in this country by polling approve of universal background checks and nothing happened. So, so, so me, why will this happen? I always say that if this country hasn't broken your heart, you don't love her enough. There are things happening in this nation that should break us all if, 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 if we have that kind of compassion and empathy for each other as we should have. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that story, I have to say. And I know, I know the president, I've seen, all of us have watched his anguish mm-hmm. over the inaction of this country. 
The second thing you asked me, do I share it? Yeah, look, I'm an African-American male. We're 6% of the nation. That demographic is 6% of this nation's population. We make up over 50% of the homicide victims. Um, and when you do have shootings, when I had Shahad Smith murdered last year on my block, when we had, as you said, a shooting days ago in my neighborhood, when you have kids and parents that tell you about when fireworks go off, you think that's a celebration for Fourth of July? Well, in communities like mine, you have kids that show evidence of post-traumatic stress. They show anxiety. They hide. They duck for cover. This is outrageous. And so if you keep doing the same things over and over again and expect different results at the definition of insanity, that's why when I tell folks, uh, uh, this is here's my plan, and when I'm president of the United States, I'm going to use a lot of different tactics to, to do what I've seen some of the best uh, of American leadership do is change the terms of the debate, not let the gun industry and the gun lobby tell us what the what's possible even, but but we've got to do something to exp- get more people because the opposite of justice is often not injustice. It's apathy, inaction, and indifference. I have to ask you this. One of the things you ran on was a pledge to, uh, to release this vice of violence on the community, and you... Uh, and you did, you, 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 and you embraced um, some very aggressive policing tactics. Uh, homicides ultimately fell by, what, some 40% uh, in the city. But the tactics became controversial. The ACLU uh, petitioned the Justice Department. The Justice Department investigated, uh, you know, hundreds of, of, of incidents of uh, the infringement of rights. Shortly after you left City Hall to go to the Senate, the Justice Department uh, found in favor of the ACLU position, the police department came under supervision uh, of a monitor. Uh, you actually have your timing a little wrong there. This went down before I even left. Um, but, but, you, but, yeah. but just in the interest of time, tell me how you as a mayor, because you're obviously sensitive to this issue, how do you balance the, uh, the rights of people to live free of fear of getting shot right. and the rights of people to be respected uh, and, uh, you know, by law enforcement. And how do you balance as a mayor the need to keep the police department uh, on the job right. uh, and, and doing their job and trying to protect people while insisting that people's rights are right. being respected? No, so I, I guess what my le- hard lessons from, from my time leading the city um, out of a lot of challenges and a police department that had decades of, if, if people remember all the way back at the, the riots here, came from uh, uh, allegations of and issues of police misconduct. The, the, being tough on crime is not a contrary to respecting people's rights. You know, at the end of my career when, as mayor, when we were finding, when we were working with the Justice Department and partnering with the ACLU to do far-reaching, more far-reaching things than the Justice Department was calling for about collecting data and creating more data transparency, we began working with John Jay College, an incredible professor mm-hmm. named David. In New Kennedy. York, a criminal yeah, justice. Yeah, guy. sorry, forgive me, David Kennedy. To start looking at ways to reduce violence by building community, by you know, we literally had these sessions where we called in gang members, and, and I see Arnie Duncan actually in Chicago doing some extraordinary things. Former education secretary. Secretary, who's now, I mean, he's really this man of extraordinary... Trying to intervene with, 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 actually with young, young men who have gotten involved with gangs and want, to, yeah. and want to find a better path. Yeah, and so we started doing things that were 
interventions that not only helped us lower crime, but helped to build community strength and strength of people that are often given up on. And so there are strategies that work that we need to double down on as a society. That's why this, you call it the 14-point plan. I always worry that whenever Democrats are trying to run on a 14-point plan as opposed to the heart of an issue, there are things that we know and we're calling for in my plan, which is not just about law enforcement and micro-stamping guns and licensing, but also investing in those strategies that we're seeing are working in places like Chicago and Oakland and Newark that, that will actually help to drive down crime and elevate community strength. As my police director always says, you can't save the village by burning it down. We've got to find a way to restore community and actually restore trust between police officers. But as someone who has made criminal justice reform the core of, of your work or one of the cores of your work, uh, were you anguished by that? ACLU, by the Justice Department report about the Newark Police Department under your leadership? When I first, well, when I first got there, I, I, I knew there was problems and, and I felt we were riding the ship. I wasn't anguished over the accusation. I was anguished, hey, we're doing the best we can. We're turning the ship. We're going to get there. We weren't moving fast enough. And so at first I felt like, wait a minute, I'm doing everything I can. And just didn't realize that sometimes in life you need to ask for help. And as the U.S. attorney there at that point said to me, you're going to get like millions of dollars worth of free consulting right now. And you're gonna see things through our data efforts that give you transparency that you don't have or even have the capacity, built the capacity to, to understand. So it actually ended up being something that I went from being anguished over to being grateful for. And it helped to yield a lot of strategies to make Newark working with the ACLU be a, a model for what you can do. Uh, this, this controversy has uh, arisen because Bernie Sanders said uh, in a debate or in a town hall meeting, I should say, that he would uh, favor giving everyone in prison the right to vote, even the Boston Marathon bomber. Uh, and I'm sure you've gotten this question yeah. uh, on the trail. You, you, are a, uh, you are a criminal justice reformer. I'm sure you uh, support the uh, resumption of voting rights when one leaves prison. But what about when people are in prison? And, and I'm going to answer your question, but I just want to ask you why I find this question so frustrating yeah. to me is because as a guy that knows there was more marijuana arrests in 2017 uh, than there were criminal justice, than there were violent crime arrests, that people are literally serving time for things that President Obama admitted to doing, that President Bush admitted to doing, that the problem we have in America is not that people are losing their voting rights, is that they're losing their liberty when they shouldn't lose their liberty. And this mass incarceration where we've seen this prison population go up 500 percent since 1980 alone. And so no, I, 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 I appreciate that point. frustrate me because what ends up happening is you hear the soundbite that is, is that so-and-so supports the marathon bomber. And I'm sitting here waving my hands and saying, what about the hundreds of thousands of people that of are getting arrest records for marijuana in our country? And so do I believe that people who did things that President Obama and President Bush did who are serving time should have the right to vote? Yeah. Do I believe the marathon bomber or child molester should have the right to vote? No. No. And, and, and creating a debate that is, to me, a distraction from the urgency of reducing mass incarceration in this country uh, is frustrating to a guy who's been fighting on this issue since I was a college kid and trying to get people to pay attention to it. And, I, and, and Bernie Sanders is my valued colleague, but I look at his state that has 1% African-Americans, and I think their prison population is like 11% black, with incarcerating people that shouldn't be there, that's what I want the debate to be about. The urgency of mass, in, mass incarceration, mm -hmm. the over-incarceration of black, brown people, mentally ill people, uh, 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 drug-addicted people that shouldn't be in jail, should be getting treatment, uh, should be getting uh, health care. And we've got a system that's so screwed up, and now we're debating whether the Boston bombers should have the right to vote? Come on. Come on. 
This is what happens in this country that distracts from the real urgencies that we have, that creates issues. Is that going to be a bill that's going to come up in the United States Senate? No, but the bill that should come up is that people who are convicted of marijuana crimes should have their records expunged uh, and should not be serving time. Is If presidents can do it and senators can do it, don't arrest a black kid in Newark uh, or, or right. Chicago for doing that. Uh, completely understand that issue, but you understand politics and you understand how, uh, uh, how an, an answer like that, how, how irrelevant it is to what might actually happen, can be weaponized in a campaign. Yeah, but I'm tired in this campaign. I'm in, I'm in a town hall in Iowa and somebody asked me, do I believe in capitalism? I mean, if that's where the Democratic Party is going to be leading the debate, we are in trouble. Do I believe in capitalism? Hell yeah. You and I are going to a restaurant of an African-American woman who started a small business. I want to see more new business starts because we have a crisis in our country that new business starts are going right. down. Right. And they're the engine of job, uh, job creation in our country. I want more entrepreneurialism. I don't want more oligarchies that are squeezing out unfair competition. What we have is a perversion of capitalism going on, which is crony capitalism. We need to get back to a more vibrant free market uh, that is more democratic. And so what I keep having to see in this election, you don't have to tell me I have to like it because <laughs> I'm very frustrated that I continue to have to answer questions about debates that are distracting us from the urgencies that are affecting most Americans and the people in my community who first put me into politics. Is that a danger for the Democratic Party? Yes, it absolutely is a danger. I'm, it is a serious danger if we're arguing over should there be capitalism, should, should uh, uh, we uh, uh, be allowing the Boston bomber, I can bomber to vote. I mean, these are things that undermine the urgencies of the bigger issues that everybody's trying to distract us from. Lowering prescription drug prices. I mean, there are, I, heard a, I heard two presidents now sitting in the chamber talk about it. And, and have we gotten anything done? Sincerely, no. When, when, when now we're going to distract by people who try to take things and, and create issues that are just not issues, and you wonder why Americans get cynical about politics, because we're not talking about the issues that matter to them. So yeah, I, 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 I will have to answer your questions, <laughs> but I don't have to like it, and I want to try to turn the conversation back to the issues that people are concerned about in the communities I'm fighting for, from rural towns to factory towns to all those communities where people feel like they're being left out of the conversation and their issues are not being reflected in the national conversation. And this is why I'm going to bring up issues that we're not talking about enough. I'm not talking about the housing crisis in America enough. Why isn't housing a main issue? Because most Americans are paying more than a third of their income for rent, which qualifies them as, as according to our federal, their federal government, as housing insecure. And by the way, they're often paying a lot of money to pack too, too many people in too few bedrooms uh, or in housing that's substandard. There are common sense solutions we can do in a country that takes all of our tax breaks. What do we do with them? We, we focus them on people that already have money to help them have more money as opposed to doing the common sense things like, hey, if you're paying more than a third of your income in rent, you should be able to deduct that from your taxes so we create more affordability and more demand for affordable housing. You know, I appreciate your frustration, um, but this is the... the the nature of our politics, and it's going to take so you're saying enormous don't, don't hate the player, hate the game. No, that, no, it? it's going to take an enormous amount of discipline and patience to try and push back against these kind of forces in the in in, in the contemporary political realm, of which the president, you know, right. is a master player. You grew up in a suburban community, mostly white community. Uh, 20 miles from here. In fact, it was an all-white community before your parents showed up and uh, fought to integrate the community. Uh, and 
so tell me what that experience was like growing up in those circumstances. Uh, and then I, I want to ask you about your progression that led you back here to Newark. Well, it's, it's sort of a full circle. I mean, I, my parents had to get a white couple to pose as them. There was a big sting operation set up and a volunteer group put white couples to follow my parents around house shopping in Bergen County. And when my parents were told the house was sold, the white couple would show up and find out the house was still for sale. And the house I grew up in, not only did the white couple pose on us to put a bid on the house, but on the day of the closing, when my father showed up with the lawyer to confront the real estate agent for their violation of federal law, the real estate agent punched my dad's lawyer in the face and sigged a dog on my dad. And so I grew up in a, in a community with sitting around a table with parents who lived very different lives than I did. And the stories of my mom participating in sit-ins, helping to plan the march on Washington, the stories around my kitchen table about everything that I had as my father would indicate to me, don't, you drink deeply from wells of freedom and liberty and opportunity that you didn't dig. My dad was almost indignant, indignant about his two sons having, experiencing a life that was a dangerous dream to articulate just a generation or two ago. And my dad would be like, boy, don't walk around this house like you hit a triple, you were born on third base you can't pay back those blessings. You have an obligation to pay them forward. And so my brother and I were raised with this understanding that the, the, you don't get these blessings to luxuriate in them. Uh, and to, to, as my father would say, sit back and get dumb, fat, and happy. Uh, these are blessings to be metabolized and used as fuel to continue the fight for justice in this country. And my, I, I still remember my graduations. My, my dad would joke with me, boy, you got more degrees in the month of July, but you ain't hot. Life isn't about the degrees you get, it's about the service you give. Yeah, you, you went to Stanford, you were a football star. You went to Stanford, you played football there, you were the class president, you wrote a column. You, you did work uh, in the community uh, while you were there. You, you went to Oxford, you went to Yale Law, and, and then you came back here and uh, I'm sure that many people here wondered why. Well, I think the politics often I heard that question, but the people in the community in which I still live, um, they just wanted to know, was I for real? And was I willing to roll up my sleeves and help? And, uh, you know, I always say I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark because I was adopted by a lot of the sort of the elders in that community and put to work. And as a guy who am, I am where I am today because a whole bunch of folks fought for my family's housing rights, the first thing I did uh, getting out of fellowship out of law school was to fight, fight for tenant rights, fight for the housing rights of others. Because you can't pay it back, you gotta pay it forward. And, and that's why I tell people life is about purpose, not position. Uh, the work that I was doing then is very similar in purpose to the work I'm doing right now, whether now it might be the housing bills I've introduced since I've been in the United States Senate or the criminal justice reform bills I've introduced. But when I come home to Newark, New Jersey, that's my barometer. Is the work I'm doing, does it really matter to Miss Jones, who was the first person, the tenant president of my buildings, who first told me to run for office and then made me promise her that I would not leave the community or forget the people that first got me elected. Then it was to city council and she was just worried that city council people get elected and forget where they come from. When you, uh, when you ran for mayor the first time against Sharp James, it was, it was a brutal campaign, all manner of abuse and intimidation and caricature uh, of you, uh, his, uh, his off-quoted quote was, you have to learn to be African-American and we don't have time to train you, the implication being that you weren't really an African-American uh, and that you didn't really uh, belong here, that you were using, uh, that you were using Newark. Um, how, how powerful was that? Because you end up losing 
most of the black wards in that, in that race. That was a margin of difference in the race. He, he depicted you as a quasi-Republican. He depicted you as, uh, uh, as Jewish. Uh, he depicted you in many different ways, uh, gay. Um, I want to talk about that in a minute related to the politics of today. Um, but you, you, didn't, you didn't do particularly uh, well in that community. You came back four years later and you did. Well, I, you're, you're, as, as a guy who knows politics, we actually won a lot of black neighborhoods. Uh, we lost that election by a handful of points. It was, it was a really close fight. I hope people will watch uh, the Oscar-nominated documentary yes. called Street Fight. It was a great movie. It's a great film. I mean, this is a guy, that, and it's the filmmaker, really. He's, won, he's been nominated for a few Academy Awards now. He, that one lost to March of the Damn Penguins. <laughs> um, but uh, it's an amazing film about a clash of generations in, in, in Newark, and I'm really proud of probably one of the greatest experiences of my life, and I hate to say, say how it ended, uh, but... When Newarkers saw me go right back to work and community organizing, staying there, by the time a year out from the election, we were polling 25 points ahead of any opposition because Newark is a community that wants to know you're for real. And while the Central Ward, which supported me in significant ways, knew who I was, uh, I was running a citywide election from a ward seat. And we ended, up, uh, we ended up coming up short and then winning in the biggest landslide at that point in, in Newark history uh, when I came back and run and, and ultimately beat the machine. Right now uh, in polling, and I always point out to people that these really are marathons. It's a cliche. We're at like mile marker three. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we take, a, we judge in like that a 20 moment. mile race. Yeah. Yeah. But having said that, uh, if you look at polling, Vice President Biden has like 50 percent of the vote among African-American voters in the Democratic uh, electorate. And you have under four. Why is he doing uh so well, uh, and, and does the association with President Obama give him a special place in this, in this race? Well, I, I don't know. Um, I do know that we see that over 50% of African Americans don't even know who I am right now. So while uh, uh, the vice president has full name recognition, we have uh, operating with, with a significant lot of people that don't. So I'm still introducing myself to voters. You also know that Barack Obama was behind in South Carolina. Until he won the Iowa until caucuses. Until he won the Iowa caucuses. And so, you know, we're working really hard to, to run a grassroots organizing campaign that reminds me a lot of how we beat the machine in Newark, which is you get on the ground. And in my very first race in an African-American ward, in the central ward in Newark, we beat the machine by doing what you got to do in this race, which was we went out into the fields, living room to living room, door to door, town hall from town hall in 1998. My opponent got the same amount of votes he always got, but we brought out an entirely new electorate and won in the central ward of Newark, New Jersey. In Iowa, you know, I, I've, I've gone all over the state now, and you've got to earn people's vote. You've got to get out there and meet people and do the kind of organizing that I feel very comfortable as a guy who came up through retail politics. And so I'm excited about this because it affords, many people think, oh, it's a nationwide presidential election. Well, you and I know those early states, they have voting populations around the size of my city here in Newark where we sit. They're made for retail politics and organizing. And I, I think we're going to do extraordinarily well in those early primary states. How, when do you have to start breaking through, do you think? Well, I mean, obviously, well, by the caucuses. But you tell me, how was John Kerry doing uh, right before the Iowa caucus? No, there's a history of, of this. People not so polling well until Iowa, New Hampshire, where people break out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, but he, he also had the ability to raise money. It was a different time. Yeah. 
that has to be a concern for you. I mean, just breaking out in a field of 22 candidates. Yeah, well, we've, we've done well raising money. We're not at the top, but we're the number two fundraiser from women, the number one run fundraiser in, in some demographics. We're, we're, we're raised the money to hit our goals, to do what I need to do, which is to field organizing teams in early primary states in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada. And we're hiring up and we're running a campaign with a unique message which you, you and I have discussed a little bit, with a, uh, a philosophy of campaigning that I think is very loyal to what my strength is, which is uh, grassroots organizing, connecting to people where they are. Uh, and we're gonna continue that. And the good thing is I've got nine months until Iowa to continue that work, which I think is what it's gonna take to win those early primary states and begin to break through. You know, one of the things that I, uh, that was also part of that campaign, and I mentioned it, was that you were a kind of quasi-Republican because you were getting support from Wall Street uh, and donors. And you have gotten quite a bit of support uh, from the financial community and you've been supportive of them. You've said that they also, it was important to Newark to have that uh, kind of support. But you're in an environment now of kind of populist uh, moment where there's a lot of anger about inequality, about the excesses of the financial community. Yeah. Is that a burden for you in this? Well, I live in New Jersey where hundreds of thousands of people from jobs ranging from secretaries on up. Uh, my high school friends uh, have often worked in the industry, but there was a nonprofit that did an analysis of who votes with Wall Street in, 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 uh, in the Senate. I, they said Cory Booker zero times has voted in, for, in favor of Wall Street. In fact, I fought against the rollbacks of Dodd-Frank and uh, some things that I think are awful, like carried interest and more. So when I was a mayor of the city of Newark, we needed to do things uh, to get things going, to get jobs created, getting institutional capital to invest, getting philanthropy in our city, because we were in a recession, which recessions for the country are depression-like circumstances here. Let me ask you specifically about one battle you fought here, which was over schools. One of the public-private partnerships was for school reform here in Newark, and you were a champion, and I think you continue to be a champion for vouchers for, uh, and particularly for charter schools, uh, which have uh, flourished here in Newark. And that has become a bone of contention uh, with, some te with the teachers unions and some forces within the Democratic uh, Party. Right. And again, you, you keep characterizing these things, which I appreciate the opportunity is often the way that uh, somebody who's trying to attack me would. The reality is, is what I've been a champion for in Newark was for Newark kids to have great public schools. And what I championed specifically is that we should create a system, a unified system that works for my kids. And so I fought to close charter schools that were not serving my kids. And we did expand things like KIPP that really helped them. But we said to KIPP, hey, you can't cream. You've got to make sure that you're standing up for the values of this city. And that's why we formed a common enrollment for, for folks here. And I'm really proud of that, of that stand. And we should not have a system where your activist parent or your zip code determine your, your, the quality of the school you do. My vision for America is that every zip code in America has great quality schools, regardless of the, 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 your parents' ability to navigate school systems or if they have to work two jobs and can't do that. So in Newark, we created a one enrollment system to get around all of this. So you don't have to apply for a lottery over here and apply for a magnet school. There's a different system here that says we're gonna create a one enrollment system where teachers, where parents can just apply for their top schools and give kids chance. And we worked really hard to make sure that all of our options were high quality options. And I, I, wanna, I, I just wanna stipulate that 
in fact, graduation rates went up dramatically, I think 27%. Like, yeah, close to 30%. Yeah, and, graduation and, rates up. And, and performance as well. It, not just a little bit. If you're a black kid in Newark, which as you said is the majority of my kids, your chances of going to a high-performing school since I was mayor in 2006 have gone up almost 400%. We have our population growing for the first time in 60 years, and a lot of folks that I know, in fact, I had a police officer on my detail when I was mayor, moved his family back into Newark from the suburbs because the schools were better here. This is an incredible story from Harvard to Washington University documenting our success, and it's a tribute not to one guy, but to a community of people that put aside purity and said, we're going to create a school system that works for every child. We're not there yet, but the progress we've made in a short time is extraordinary. And as President of the United States, I believe every child should have a great public school to go to, like the children in Newark are having greater and greater opportunities. We can achieve that. Why does it seem like a crazy goal? It means fully funding uh, our public schools, not starving them. It means creating a teaching profession where people aren't disrespected, but we are actually forgiving college debt for our teachers, raising their salaries. It means focusing on special needs education because we don't talk about that enough. We've shown in Newark with a system that was under state takeover, known for its uh, uh, poor performance in a, in a span of a decade, uh, we've shown dramatic turnarounds in the toughest of conditions. As President of the United States, I'm gonna have affordable, debt-free college, but I'm gonna be putting us back in a position where we have the best apprenticeship programs on the planet Earth to show that we can be a system that gives dignity to all the pathways for our children and make sure that the machinists in this country, I remember talking to manufacturers here and asking what their biggest pain point when I was mayor, and I thought they were gonna complain to me about property taxes. They complained to me they couldn't find a machinist. And I asked them, how much does a machinist make? And when they told me the salaries, I thought to myself, maybe I'll leave being that's a mayor. A good job. Yeah, that's yeah, a, good that's job. a pretty good job. So this is your neighborhood. This Vonda's kitchen here is, is one of one of your haunts. It's actually one of the things I'm, one of the pride points for me in my life is this is an incredible entrepreneur who had a dream, but like many people from my community, they can't get access to capital, they can't get help to support and start their business. And we had this idea that a lot of cities face gentrification problems, but we wanted to create uh, indigenous prosperity and really look to people from our community. And we helped her get access to capital, start this restaurant, and now this were an area that used to be surrounded by high-rise projects like Cabrini Green in mm -hmm. Chicago, and now she's thriving. It's double and I dare say triple park sometimes on the streets. Yeah, she's saying four hundred people a day. Yeah, or yeah, it's an incredible story. That if you give a little bit of an opportunity to people, often they'll get a shot. They are going to take that and run with it and do things that you can't imagine. Well, I, I ate before you arrived, and I must say I highly recommend it. I, she's she's she earns. She earns this. Uh... Well, I say this as a black guy from Newark, where this is this is an Af majority African American city, and this is probably one of the most African American parts. So one day I was walking down here, and I see three white people get out of a car, and one of them has a University of Washington hat. Now, for a Pac-10 guy like me, that's a normal sight, but I've just never seen a UW hat in Newark. And I had to walk up to the folks, and I said, "I said, what brings you to my neighborhood?" And uh, they're like, we heard about Vonda's Kitchen. No kidding. And I was like, oh my God. I said, yeah, we took an Uber here. We landed at the airport and took an Uber you know, here. And I mean, that's the, this is the changing Newark. And you talk Stanford football with them? I, I, I cannot, I love the Pac-12, uh, but I can't miss a chance to tease another team. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at uh, your, your meal here. 
you've been a vegetarian now almost 30 years, and you've been a vegan for how long? Since 2014, I became a vegan. Yeah, and what, that was a philosophical decision on your part, is that? So the, the, the vegetarian switch was all about me experimenting with which diets as a football player, and then I was playing basketball for Oxford varsity team. What was the best diet to, to have peak performance? And for me, my body just took off. And I knew even then that I should probably go all the way because when I cut down on you know, milk products and things like that, I felt my body just felt better. But it was hard for me to give up pizza and ice cream. Uh, and, so you you're know, saying that plate full of chicken I just had was not the right thing? Not, not, for, <laughs> <laughs> not operating at peak here? Um, I still read everything I can about like, uh, health. And you see the, all these like, ultra marathon runners, bodybuilders, defensive lines uh, of, I, I can't remember which team, switched over, Tom Brady, lots of people are realizing for them that they can get better performance by reducing or eliminating uh, animal products. And so I, I just wanna always try to live the best well-being possible, and for me it works, but I'll tell you this, I'll be honest with you, I, I became a vegan on election day 2014 when I won my second race for Senate, and then I proceeded to gain the most weight I've ever gained. So you can be a vegan and still be a, a junk food vegan and really unhealthy. It's all about balance and finding what works for you. And I, I think I've yeah. got it. I think I've got it better than I've had in a long time. I don't know that I'm going to follow you, but I believe you. Uh, and you don't drink. I don't drink. You don't smoke. No. And uh, including the product that you want to legalize, weed. You don't smoke that either. No. You have to understand. I, 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 I was, I was a, grew up as a black guy in an all white neighborhood with parents who really were worried about their two kids and knew that we would have different experiences with the police and cautioned me that my margins for error and, exper error and experimentation were different. And I think they impressed upon me that if you have ambitions and dreams, minimize the variables in the equation of your life. And I think that started as a teenager and it just took hold. And uh, again, I, I believe what Lincoln said. He said, I, I've long since realized a man with few vices has few virtues. <laughs> and so I'm, you may be making me feel like an aesthetic, but <laughs> um, my addiction to Ben and Jerry uh, might, might counter that. But the reality is, is I think I made decision, those kind of decisions as a kid because I was really concerned as a guy that wanted to play athlete, athlete, uh, football at a high level. I just didn't want to screw it up. And, and those became habits uh, of mine that have, have sustained. So... Uh there's, there's seven churches in this area, I'm told, uh, in the vicinity of where we sit. And you and I have had discussions before uh, about different faiths, including Judaism. Yeah. Uh, and you know far more uh, about it than I do. And I was bar mitzvahed. Okay. Um, do you remember so, your Torah portion? Uh, I do not. Are you serious? No, but th this is a big thing, you know, which is you... You, you are taught to, for the occasion and not for the underlying value, which is, I think, a great loss uh, to me. But I, and I'll never proselytize Judaism to you, but <laughs> as a guy who studied it for decades, unlike the other two Abrahamic faiths, mine, Christianity, Islam, it's not trying to convert people. This is about a bunch of rabbis, learned people, arguing for eons about what it means to live a good life. And I can't say I agree with everything I've learned from my Torah study, but... Martin Luther King drew so much from the Torah. It's like a really no, powerful... A, a friend of mine, Sarah Hurwitz, who was a speechwriter at the White House, wrote for Mrs. Obama, yeah. just wrote a book about sort of rediscovering Judaism as an adult, having, like, I, you know, sort of been, uh, you know, uh, exposed to it as kind of an obligation rather than a, than, than a gift. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a moving book, and it's all about what you 
suggest, which is the life lessons that could be found there. But what, what drove you uh, to that? So faith has been the, the center of my, of, of my child and my upbringing. But you know, when you, you reach a point where you are becoming an adult, you've got to decide, am I going to be like this religion that I sort of inherited? You suddenly look at it and stare at it. And, um, you know, when I was off on my own in my college, I think that's when I really became religious. Uh, but but I, I don't even like that word because it has a connotations of judgment and exclusivity. I think my, my, the depth of my spiritual life, I started exploring it when I got to college. And I, my Christianity grew beyond a lot of the um, judgmentalism and guilt and formalism that I, I think that, that I inherited a little bit from the sort of the predominant ideals of Judeo-Christian faith. And I just began to feel this profound love of Jesus. I just began to, this unconditional love, this guy that hated poverty and, um, you know, stood before people who were trying to cast stones. And, and then I started realizing that there's a humility in my faith. And if I'm humble before God's creations, the, the, what does it say, the love you have to know? And I just became insanely curious about, okay, well, what are other manifestations of the divine on, on earth? And it was like a gift to me when I got to Oxford to stumble into a Chabad house of all places and have a, a rabbi who we made a deal when we first met, which was we don't know much about each other's cultures, but let's exchange books. And the first book I gave him was Malcolm X's autobiography. And then I'm embarrassed. I was a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford. And the first book he gave me, I had never read anything by this guy. It was Night by Elie Wiesel. Oh, my. Yeah. And I found... You know, with, there are so many different experiences, but the the more I read about Jews and Judaism, uh, and then started really becoming curious about Black Jewish uh, alliances. You know, you're in a city where the guy who spoke right before Martin Luther King talk about having a, a terrible positioning in, in, in history. It's like I spoke before Michelle Obama in the uh, yeah conventions. That was bad draw, bad draw. And yeah. my mom comes up to me afterwards, being my mother who loves to keep my feet on the ground. She's like, "What an amazing speech!" I'm like, "Mom, thank you." She goes, "No, not you, Michelle." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, Rabbi Yocham Prince. Five people spoke at the March of Washington. A rabbi from Newark. These things fascinating. You read his speech, and I hope more people will rediscover his words. I mean, this started speaking to me. And then when I started studying Torah... And yet, and yet let me just interrupt yeah. you. You know, we've talked about this before as well, but the relationship between the African-American community and the Jewish community isn't now what it was then. I'm not, I'm not sure if I would draw that simplistic conclusion. You know, you're again in a city where... It's what, what I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, down the road here is yeah. a, a high school called Week Wake High School. So high school that Philip Roth went to. He was... One of America's greatest authors, yeah. Jewish. Weequake High School had PhDs. It was considered one of the best high schools in America back in the 40s when, when that was a completely Jewish area. It's now an all-black high school. There's an alumni association, mostly Jews, that embrace the high school kids yeah. and do so much for them. So what gets attention in America now is often the divisions, the tribalism, uh, the tension. And we, we fail to see, and what gets obscured is all, all around America, I still remember even... In, in Crown Heights, at the height of the problems that were going on there, you, you would hear these beautiful stories about relationships that became the fabric, the, the very cords that held uh, the community uh, together at a time that there were so many forces pulling it apart. What do you make of the debate within the Democratic Party uh, over Israel? 
uh, and there were some young members of the House uh, of color have raised concerns about uh, the Palestinians, about Israeli policy toward the Palestinians, uh, and this has created obvious tension, Representative Omar's comments and so on. Um, that seems more pronounced. You know, I, I have the blessing of discovering Israel before I was a politician, and you know this, a lot of times the first trips people take, uh, often when they're running for office, they yeah. need to run over uh, to Israel, and we, they should, to learn about foreign policy. My first trip to Israel was when I was 24 years old. I had been studying Torah for two years, and, and it, discovering Israel for me, and the people of Israel, yeah. and the authenticity of the, and the grit and the... Um, all, all true. Yeah, but, but I guess I'm saying that as a preamble to say is some of the harshest criticisms of Israeli policy right now are Israeli Jews. And it, it, the wonderful thing about Israel is it's democracy and you have fearsome debates in the same way we have in our country. And I often laugh at people and say, I don't want anybody to judge my nation on Donald Trump in the same way I'm not going to judge Israel by Netanyahu. And, and yet that's the government policy now. And the question is, uh, whether or not the opportunity for the two-state solution that that's a, we've that's stood a real for question. a generation yeah. uh, has has a future, and it's in peril. I would say it's I would say legitimately so, and I, I worry about this administration. That you know, you hear the president's comments; he doesn't even seem to understand the history of that commitment to a two-state solution, and is doing things to me that are offensive uh, by pulling back humanitarian support. Uh, uh, I understand one thing, not giving payments to uh, the, the Palestinian Authority, I support the Taylor Force Act, but to pull money from uh, NGOs and other, often led by Americans, trying to get access mm -hmm. to clean water, that's wrong to me. And so this is a perilous time that I think we as a government and we as a nation should recommit ourselves to a two-state solution. It's a and, violent time right now as well. Well, as as... We're recording this clearly so, but you and I both know that unfortunately Israel has been marked by a lot of violence over the years and from the very moment of its founding being attacked by five countries from all different sides. Mm -hmm. um, Israel's right to exist has always been under attack and its right to defend itself has always been under attack. And now more than ever, uh, I think our country needs to commit ourselves to human rights and human dignity uh, amongst Israelis and amongst Palestinians and, and be a force to fight for a two-state solution. Um, the faith, faith generally, though, um, has become such a flare point in our politics. Um, and, uh, you know, the Republican Party, uh, the, the base of the Republican Party, white evangelicals, overwhelmingly support Republican candidates, almost every other group, uh, Democrats are down. So it's a real hub and a base. And there is this edge to it, you know, there's uh, with, you know, more secularism on, on the Democratic Party side, a sense that of, of, of disdain, <laughs> you know, at, in, at times. Um, but there is this, um, uh, faith is, 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 has become sort of a political wedge uh, uh, in our politics, not, not, the, not the source of uh, sustenance and, and, and shared humanity that you, that you preach. Well, I, I, so much of what I'm doing right now is actually trying to speak to the moral imagination of our country. And my, there's many pathways to 
those values. I, I've my, I had my friends who are atheists that get to the top of that hill quicker than I do <laughs> of what our best of who we are is. For me, it's always been a, a, my pathway of my faith. And the reason why I say that is because if you come to my town halls out there, I had one reporter, my last town hall actually in South Carolina, he came up to me, he took off his credentials, said I don't really do this, but I was gonna ask you political questions, but I don't feel like I was just at a political rally, I feel like I was at a revival. And he and I had a really, he asked for a selfie then, and then we had a real conversation about that a lot of these problems we have, the poverty that I'm worried about that's surrounding us right now, obviously is there's material poverty, but the poverty around me in my nation is a poverty of empathy, a poverty of yeah. compassion. And I think this goes to a moral rot that's happening clearly in our politics, where, we, where civility is being decimated. And I don't know if we can, we're gonna get back to being able to solve the big problems or even do the things that we agree on. I mean, the stunning thing to me is, let's just use a non-controversial issue that both sides talk about, which is infrastructure. So we inherited the best infrastructure on the planet Earth from our parents, hands down. We took that inheritance, trashed it, and we're about to hand over $2 trillion of infrastructure deficit. China builds 18,000 miles of high-speed rail in recent years. The Northeast Corridor, which is the busiest rail corridor in all of uh, North America that goes between Boston and Washington, D.C., runs half an hour slower than it did in the 1960s. This is bad policy on our part that we've used our $7 trillion of our treasure for wars we shouldn't have been in and for tax cuts for the wealthiest and not investing in the things that create shared prosperity. But to me, that's almost a symptom of something deeper in our society that we're losing that sense of um, connection, of, of common, the, the urgent need for us to invest in that, in, in that com sense of common cause. And for my father's generation, when we used to, when, there, when our policies better reflected, in my opinion, that idea of a beloved community, you're sitting right now within five miles of two Superfund sites. My father's generation said, we're gonna clean these up. They decided to put a small tax on chemical companies. Ronald Reagan reauthorized that. Mitch McConnell voted for it. Now we're in this period of Grover Norquist, which says no new taxes. It lapsed because it had a sunset on it. And the number of Superfund sites since that lapsing has actually gone up in our society. Now we have longitudinal data. I know correlation is not causation, but children born around Superfund sites like this have higher rates yeah. of autism. And so what is this a lack of? To me, this is a moral problem. Because China's top 10% of their high school class, their smartest of their smart, probably has more people in number than all of our high school students combined. The most valuable natural resource in any nation in a global knowledge-based society is the genius of its children. And we so carelessly and callously throw away that genius because of environmental toxins that we should clean up. And the only thing stopping us is a sense of collective will to understand that if we have that beloved community, it says that your children's success, if they don't have a great public school, if they're poisoned by their environment, my kids are at a loss for that. Yeah. You, uh, first of all, let me ask you um, uh, something that I should have asked you before. What do you make of the rise of white supremacy, uh, the uh, attacks on synagogues have become more uh, numerous, uh, and the general rise in hate crimes over the last several years? Well, that's often when I say, when, when you see instances where anti-Semitism and, and, and anti-Islamic I mean, hate is hate, and the same people that are trying to do awful acts often against Jews are doing them to synagogues, doing them to African Americans. And again, since 9-11, we've had uh, 
the majority of our terrorist attacks have been right-wing extremist groups, and the majority of them are white supremacist groups. And so when you ask me what I make of it, I mean, <laughs> what I make of it is this is a, this is a, a, a scourge in our society, and it's not enough to say I'm not a racist. And when, when such racism and bigotry exists, you can't just sat, be satisfied with not being racist. You have to be anti-racist and work against these things. And, and I worry about a country that doesn't sound the alarm when, when in, in the garden of our democracy, these weeds of hate are, are getting root and starting to flourish, that we all don't feel a conviction to weed them out uh, uh, to, 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 to continue. I know you don't invoke the president's name in this. What role has he played? He has been giving license to hate. He has been breeding and contributing to a climate of hatred and giving, uh, I mean, literally, you see it. Racist, anti-Semitic, white supremacist groups use his language. Uh, we, not only here in this country, you saw a, a horrific act, act in New Zealand where the person pointed that language. And I think it's really dangerous. I think words, hate, words of hatred don't just dissipate in the wind. They fester and they harm and they hurt. And, and we should be quick to con condemn that. And this is a president that has done contemptible things. Why do you think that? Why do you think he does that? Because, because I mean, that's like asking, why did the Know Nothing Party thrive at one point? This party that rose up in our country to condemn Irish and Italian immigrants there with a lot of the same language the president is using. Why did we have uh, Father Conklin dominating the airwaves? But is it a matter of... Uh uh, of philosophy on his part, no, or is it a matter it's a, it's a of cheap, opportunism? It's a cheap, <laughs> it's a cheap way of of trying to demean others in order to to win elections. Really, you know, my friend John Tester uh, in the Senate. Um, I was joking. He asked me to come up and campaign for him once. Um, I joked that he can't call me up the campaign to get out the black vote. So I talked to all five people. I told him, you got four out of the five here uh, in the state. In Montana. <laughs> yeah, in Montana. And why is like the, one of the number one issues amongst Republicans there uh, the, the, what's happening at the border? You know, why did the New York Times, as Schumer pointed out, one of our Democratic caucuses, leading up to the election, I think it was like three of the four days leading up to the election, on the front page above the fold was the threat of the caravan. Uh, something that was man yeah. a threat that was manufactured by this president. Why? Because he felt like it was a great election strategy. This is a person, and there's a politics in our country that thinks the way you win is to pit American against American, is to trigger fears, is to create a zero-sum politics. That is tribalism. It is the antithesis to what I would like to see in our country, which is a reaffirmation of a beloved community, which is not fear-based politics, it is love-based politics, it's we're all in this together, it is the politics of interdependency, it's the politics that says, yeah, I love you know, rugged individual self-reliance, but those things didn't get us to the moon or beat the Nazis or beat Jim Crow or advance this country. And so I know that this politics has been a strategy that's worked for a lot of people, Nixon's Southern strategy and more. Um, but I think that that's the contest going on right now in this country, and it's a contest I think is going on even beyond this, because you know who else is trying to flare up racial tensions in this country is the Russians. Look at what the, look at what they were doing with their resources. And still doing. And still doing. Um, I, I have to ask you about yourself and this flair for the dramatic that you've had almost from the beginning of your uh, career. I mentioned I watched uh, the documentary about your first campaign. I mean you. And, and I watched you as mayor, uh, you know, going into burning, burning buildings and bringing out, uh, you know, sa saving your neighbor, chasing 
robbers, uh, burglars, uh, I guess robbers down the street, uh, you know, camping out on the corner for 10 days and going on a hunger strike to bring attention to, uh, uh, to drugs and violence on the corner. And um, that flair for the dramatic has, we, we saw it also in your Spartacus moment in the Senate where you claimed to have put yourself in danger, but it turned out that the stuff that you were releasing had already been released and it kind of backfired on you. Uh, is there, do you have concerns about that, this Hollywood kind of? No, I, I, it almost sounds like you're repeating things that are just not true. So let's go to the so-called Spartacus moment, which I laugh about because, number one, I was, if anybody plays it back, I, I was talking about Dick Durbin, who at that point literally had just said when they threatened to throw me out of the, out of the Senate, uh, he said, if you're going to throw Corey out of the Senate, throw me into the pit too. He, he was the one that showed an act of courage, and it was an, an artful way of trying to show that. And then when you say that it backfired, because what I was, you know they continued to try to throw me out of the Senate. They took ethics charges against me because it wasn't one document. I was threatening to release all the documents because the Republican Party was saying that these things are committee confidential and refusing to release documents that should have been in the public space. And we actually did release all of those documents. And the person who threatened to throw me out of the Senate, that wasn't something I invented. You had this senior senator from Texas literally say to me, uh, that we're going to throw you out of the Senate. And that's why Dick Durbin stood up for me. So a lot of these things get, get, you know, get filtered through the sort of what right-wing media and the truth gets perverted. Uh, my Senate career, you mentioned one moment in the Senate, was coming to the Senate and saying, I have to now, this is a very different body than being mayor of the city of Newark, which for me was about trying to get attention to a city that was overlooked or looked down upon. I, I was desperate to get uh, in the middle of a recession when we were losing millions of dollars to get investment here from developers and philanthropists, and we were trying to do things to get our city noticed. Um, but in the Senate, you know, my first year there, I, I took advice from Secretary Clinton, shut Keep up your head down, yeah. and do work. And I don't think I spoke in caucus uh, for a long period. I think it was, the first time I spoke was when Ferguson was happening and nobody seemed to be speaking up. But even in, 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 in the so-called things I did to flare for the dramatic, I'd laugh all the time because the things I did in my neighborhood they seemed to get a lot of attention because I was doing this mayor, but my neighbors were doing the same thing. Yeah. So if you came home and your, there was a, your neighbor's house was on fire and an elderly woman saying it was my child is still up there, uh, I know you well enough to know that you would have run into that building and risked your life to try to, to but get But I that. probably wouldn't have gone on the morning newscasts the morning of the night that I well, did that. I, we didn't go on the morning newscasts. I stood in front of my house because the press camped up outside of there. I was a mayor of the city. But and, look, and, I'm not even. But, but no, I'm, I'm I'm saying that we live in this culture where. That's what I wanted to ask yeah, you about. Yeah, we live in a culture where anybody who is out there trying to do things in politics, you're always going to get people that are trying to attack them and tear them down, even when they're doing things that are just neighborly. <laughs> I remember getting no, a, no, I, a national and, story. And you're to be commended for those things. Yeah. My, my question is: Is there a level in this media culture? Right. Is there a level of theatricality? a sense of how to be noticed that is essential to to being to competing i mean the president may be a, a very bad example of that because that's that seems to be uh, you know he is a creature of television in a yeah. sense but um, but I, I i look one of the most first times i ever trended as a story was all an engineered plant 
Conan O'Brien went on national TV and dissed American cities. And you and I both know this. Late night talk show hosts, they make fun of Chicago, Detroit. They kick cities in the gut. Yeah. yeah. When, they, when, they're, when, the, when the cities are struggling with real issues, mm -hmm. you, you know Chicago, I know Newark, uh, often they're great laugh lines. And I, I'm sitting at home one night as mayor of the city, frustrated that I can't get investment in things in my city. And there's Conan O'Brien says, I hear Newark, New Jersey has a new healthcare program. I found a way to reduce prescription drug costs for a lot of my residents. And he goes, well, I think the best new prescription drug plan, uh, uh, the best new healthcare plan for Newark, New Jersey is a bus ticket out of town. And I sat there and I said, okay, this is a new era. You may have old media, I got new media. I filmed a, sat behind my desk in City Hall, called out Conan O'Brien for insulting our city, bragged about my city on real things that were great about Newark. And then I said, Conan, by the power invested in me by the people of the city of Newark, I hereby ban you from Newark Airport. <laughs> Tried, uh, you're on the no-fly list. Try JFK, buddy. Story trended. I think even the TSA See, put, yeah, that's good. took a clarification and said that mayors don't have the power to, to, ban, to ban people from the airports. Long story short is he went on his show and banned me from Burbank Airport. The fight escalated. Now I was getting invited on shows, never got invited on before as a mayor, earned media through the roof. Every chance I got as a mayor of a struggling city, I bragged about our city. By the time the whole thing ended, Hillary Clinton filmed a video basically saying, she was Secretary of State then, trying to keep peace in the world. She, she basically said, Corey Conan, give peace a chance. If I had to be on the show, apologize, give $100,000 to Newark Charities. I was able to get calls returned after that big flare-up mm -hmm. that I had never gotten returned before. That, and, that's a case But I, I use that as a, well, first of all, when you're interviewing somebody for a job, as I found out, uh, building teams, don't ask them about what they're gonna do. Ask them, how do you dealt with a tough situation before? We're in a tough situation now. In the same way that I wanted the people to change their moral imagination about cities and potential, we need a leader that can call to the moral imagination of a country and start to shift the debate or expand what's possible. Mm -hmm. And so the platforms that Donald Trump uses to demean and degrade, my history is using these platforms to fight hate with love, to when people insult me, whether they be a fellow United States senator, not to fight them back saying, you punch me, I'm gonna punch you harder, but show grace. And this is a big debate within the Democratic Party right now is how you deal with Donald Trump. Well, I'm firmly on one side of that debate. And, and if that means I'm not the nominee from our party, I just don't think, I ran a fire department. Fighting fire with fire is not a good strategy. You, uh, speaking of that, uh, before we go, I want to ask you about this. You transferred some money over from your Senate account. Your, your, your term expires uh, coterminous with this presidential election. Yeah. Uh, so a law was passed in the state to allow you to run for both. I noticed you transferred over a couple of million dollars, maybe $2.7 million or something. You left $4 million in your Senate account. Do you intend to run for both? And I mean, you expect to be in public office of one sort or another in January of 2021? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm running full bore to be the President of the United States of America, and, and um, I'm going to fight like anything to win the support of my party and to win the support of the American people. Um, but should that not work out, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to staying in the United States Senate and continue to do what I've been doing for the last five years, which is getting stuff done, like criminal justice reform, which Dick Durbin and I led on the Democratic side in the Senate, or opportunity zones, which are helping places mm -hmm. like Chicago and Newark attract investment. Um, I, I'm proud of my career as a senator. I'm proud of the contributions I've been able to make. I'm proud of even the stuff I couldn't get passed, but just by calling stuff out, like the way women are treated in prisons. I wrote a bill called the Dignity Act, and that now has been picked up by a dozen states and introduced on the state level. So I, I'm, I love the job that I have, and but I aspire to be the president of the United States, not just because of the ideas that I want to bring to, to bear, but because I also do believe that this is a moment in America where we don't need to 
fight fire with fire or define us by the worst of who we are or fight Donald Trump on his terms, that this is time a party has to turn to the American people and not just be about beating Republicans, but this is a time we need a party that's going to unite Americans to deal with challenges and injustices. You know, if you win that race, you're not going to be able to walk down here to Vonda's by yourself. <laughs> you have a crowd of people around you and a bunch of Secret Service and so on. It changes your life. I watched your friend uh, uh, still go to some of his favorite restaurants. Vonda can be sure that I will still be back here to get some of the best vegan soul food you can get in an inner city uh, incredible community like this. Senator, it's great to be with you. Thank you for coming to my, to my town, to my neighborhood. Great to be here and to eat here. Yes. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, presented by Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Matthew Jaffe. The show is also produced by Pete Jones, Zane Maxwell, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.